Hey everybody, just a quick heads up before we get the show started. This was originally recorded last week as a B-side to our conversation with Ed Rooksby on dual-powered Leninism and socialism, but it's so important and topical, we decided to make it this week's A-side. We didn't want to put it behind a paywall, it's just too good, it's too relevant to today's most important questions about socialist strategy. So don't worry patrons, there will be a B-side later this week as per usual, so you'll be getting your money's worth, and if you're not a patron, consider signing up today at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. On with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, patrons, to this week's B-Side. Joining me, as always, is my brilliant co-host, Amy Therese. Hello, dear sweet patrons. And as uh, as always with the A-Side, just as a reminder, joining us on the line is Ed Rooksby. Ed, how are you doing? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. We had quite of a beast of an A-Side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody shake hands. All right, moving Yeah, I on. think we're all... I think we're all a bit sweaty and exhausted after that. Yeah, we're all we're all a bit uh, gassed from the A side. Uh, it was a beast of an episode. It went about two hours, and um, a couple of you all of all uh, patrons now have had the opportunity to digest it, maybe listen to it twelve times. Um, and uh, I, I, I trust that you all know it uh, verbatim, word for word, and you can recite it along with it uh, as as though it were your favorite movie. But anyway, if you're not a patron and you're hearing this, this is just going to be a little bit of a teaser. It's meant to wet your whistle, get you excited to hear the rest of the episode. <laughs> Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe to the society. Support the New Left Agenda. You know, we've got some plans to expand our offerings. We're going to be offering new podcasts. We're going to make a jump to video, uh, YouTube, all that kind of stuff in the coming months. And we really need your financial support to be able to pull that off. It's, a, it's an ambitious project. And uh, I'm sort of, I guess I'm, holy shit, Amy, did I just announce that for the first time on the air? I think you may have. Did I I just spoil it? I think that's what you just did. That was a, that was a shitty uh, announcement. I really need to kind of like up my uh, capitalist PR bonus. Up the ad to you a little, yeah. Yeah, we should have, uh, we should have got one of those inflatable flailing arm man guys. You know what I'm talking about? The things they put outside uh, the used car dealerships. Adam, I think we know you're a socialist at heart, if for no other reason than fucking terrible at marketing. We should have had a ribbon cutting ceremony, Ed. You could have, uh, we could have handed you a giant pair of uh, shears, and you could have cut the ribbon, you know, or or a shovel, as though you know the owners of things have ever built or dug any holes in their entire lives. Yeah, what well, like laid the foundation stone, that kind of thing. Right, right, the, right. The refoundation, like the refoundation, if you will. Refoundation oh. stone. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, enough of that. Yeah. So we've we're, we've got some really exciting things to come, and uh, we're really excited to bring those to you. But we need your financial support. So head over to Patreon.com and uh, all the patrons. Apologies for the shenanigans. We're going to get right to it. The question at hand is the democratic road to socialism. In the A side, we broke down the historical reality and the theoretical pitfalls of the so-called dual power strategy, um, how it comes up against all kinds of barriers of uh, economic crisis, political crisis. Uh, the crisis of democracy, uh, the notion of this kind of like ruptural strategy versus a kind of more strategic long game. And in this episode, we want to use Nikos Polantzas' text, State Power Socialism, in particular the final section, which is called Towards Democratic Socialism, to kind of articulate this inside-outside approach, uh, you know, utilizing 
uh, structural reforms in the way that Ed and I's uh, first episode sort of articulated some months ago. And uh, we're going to spell that out for you. And so starting off, the Second International gets a really bad rap in the history of Marxism. And for for some good reasons, for those who, who aren't fully conversant in the history of Marxology and socialist history and, and all the rest of it, the Second International came about in the early 20th century and kind of fell apart in the wake of World War I. The adoption of war credits in Germany and elsewhere represented, in the eyes of many, I would say, a certain kind of capitulation to the forces of imperialism. It's said that the social democratic parties, which were once revolutionary, gave way to a certain kind of national chauvinism, if you will, and they completely reneged on the idea of a proletarian international or international worker solidarity by giving into the demands of World War I. So Ed, your new book that's uh, forthcoming in, the, in, in, a, in a couple of years uh, really tackles this question of the Second International. And, and of course, while not being in any sense an apology for their shortcomings, uh, you do try to resuscitate uh, a kernel that can be really useful to us uh, out of that moment. Uh, spell that out for us a little bit. How do you approach that question? Yeah, well, I mean, it's tentative right now. Um, so I'm not sure how much I'm going to make this a central argument, but it's. Uh, I think there's um, the roots of so many strategic oppositions and the way that these debates get set up are found in that period, right, of the Second International. And like you say, it's a kind of simple just so story that's told about the second international where you know the various reformists are shown up for the cowards and traitors and renegades that they are by the um the capitulation to their own sort of national chauvinism during when this first world war starts and then later that's reinforced by their shocking denunciation of Bolshevik repression and by the failure of the German SPD to undertake a revolution after the First World War and the way in which they're kind of, you know, the SPD leadership are complicit in the suppression of the Spartacus uprising and the death of Luxembourg and Liebknecht. And it's true that the history of the Second International, the way it it kind of fell apart, is not a very um, attractive story. It's not a happy story. But that's not all all, all there is to it. And for one thing, it appears to me that this narrative about the sort of gradual loss of revolutionary purpose, by particularly by the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party, the biggest putatively Marxist party in Europe at the time, there's a story that's told with the benefit of hindsight, you know, from the perspective of the Bolshevik position in particular, that tells a story about the way in which the SPD got sort of, it got too chummy with its own state, that the, the officials, trade union officials and party officials built a nice sort of little life for themselves within the bureaucracy and they made concessions to national chauvinism and the the kind of rot set in, the, the rot that was to become known as reformism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's obviously a lot to that, but I think what that kind of story leaves out is the, you know, the very real structural reasons for the gradual de-radicalization, if you like, of the SPD. It's not simply a matter of 
cowardly leaders, you know, or um, uh, sort of wrong ideological decisions by revisionists and things like that. There was actually, there was a good reason why the SPD would become increasingly bound up with the, you know, sort of German state, the German society. It, it became part of that, but the political structures of Germany as it won more and more MPs to the parliament. And they faced a real dilemma. And they were the first party really to have to work out, you know, what does it mean for us when we say that we're for the overthrow of capitalism, we say we're for a revolution, but we're winning steadily more and more representation in parliament. We're winning millions and millions of votes. There's millions and millions of members of the SPD. To what extent does it actually really map on to the to the concrete realities of the political situation and the, the trajectory of development in Germany? To what extent do, can we really pretend anymore to be, you know, much like the, in that confrontation between Weber and Palantzis as somehow a force which is encircling a fortress state? Because it's not that's not happening. We're actually in it, right? We're penetrating it. We're right there. It's, so people are trying to sort of theorise what's happening in the thick of it, which is always difficult, isn't it? It's always easier with the benefit of hindsight to work out what was actually happening. But at the time, people were trying to utilise theoretical resources and the kind of legacy of Marx and Engels and so on to to work out what was actually happening and what they should do. And the, the I guess the famous theoretical innovation, if you like, which was more often presented as an apostasy, was the Bernstein's revisionism, you know, uh, and the beginnings of the sort of rejection of catastrophism, of the idea that the final crisis of capitalism was approaching, and that, and more than that, that actually Bernstein starts to argue that that capitalism is overcoming its own, uh, own contradictions, and that in fact he, that socialism isn't somehow sort of absolutely different to capitalism it's it's a development you know that we can kind of tease out of contemporary democratization of liberal democratic societies and I, I think bernstein is often i think he's wrong in many ways you know capitalism wasn't overcoming its contradictions it wasn't we weren't heading towards it's the similar story that you often hear about you know that, that capitalism's overcome its inherent tendency towards boom and bust or it hasn't capitalism's overcoming its inherent you know reliance on exploitation um clearly that's well, if you're going to remain within a Marxist, problematic. You can't accept that. But on the other hand, I think that Bernstein is often dismissed as a sort of caricature. You know, he's this um, apostate. He's this. Uh, he introduced the virus of revisionism, and everything went downhill because of him. And the second worst figure of the Second International in this sort of pantheon of villains, if you like, is Karl Kautsky, yeah, yeah. who's known as the Pope of Marxism in the Second International, one of the things he's accused of is having a very mechanical, teleological conception of historical progress. So, you know, the kind of uh, communism is, un- is inevitable. It's just a matter of time. You just need to wait until conditions are right and the proletariat will rise up and there'll be a revolution. We don't really have to do anything about it. It's kind of fatalistic. And that that's a very real dimension of his thinking and of perhaps of a lot of the Second International's theory too. But Kautsky was much more than that. He's much more interesting than that. Um, and one of the interesting things about that crisis of the Second International with the breakout of the World War One is that it's not the people who you expect necessarily who are the ones who fall in behind their own national war effort. 
So Kautsky at first is a little bit vacillating about it, but he eventually comes out against the First World War. He actually opposes the support that the, the majority of the SPD gives to, to its own side in the First World War. And Bernstein's against the First World War too, in fact, much more, much more decisively so. And so there's no, there's no actual direct correlation between the revisionism of people like Bernstein and, the, and uh, Kautsky's moving towards a centrist position, which perhaps I'll talk about a bit, a bit later. There's no correlation between that and the falling in behind the national war effort, that national chauvinism. And in fact, Kautsky and Bernstein go on to, uh, Kautsky's busy slagging off Bernstein actually during the revisionist controversy, but they, they grow closer together. They realise they've actually got quite a lot in common. And they actually together join a break-off group party from the SPD called the USPD, the Independent Socialist Social Democratic Party, which is what later becomes characterised as the birth of centrism. And Kautsky is kind of the theoretician of this. And what essentially he's trying to do is to work out what we might today call a democratic road to socialism, which isn't reformism and which isn't the kind of insurrectionism associated with the Bolsheviks. And Kautsky becomes a massive critic of Bolshevik methods and gets himself a pamphlet devoted entirely to him by Lenin, in which he's called all sorts of names. If you read the proletarian revolution and the renegade Kautsky, it's very colourful. About 50% of this book is just Lenin basically insulting Kautsky as an idiot and a you know as a fool and this and that the substance of the argument it, it's very much takes second place in the pamphlet yeah it's a dis, um, it's a diss track it's an extended it uh, diss track like yeah. you'll find you know some rapper against another rapper yeah it's <laughs> absolutely it's ugly. Right. yeah yeah the kind of kernel of what Kautsky's trying to say is that there is substance to bourgeois democracy it's not simply a sham. It's not simply a method of uh, befuddling the masses. There is actually uh, something valuable to liberal democracy that we can't just destroy and dismiss. And so he's trying to think through what does it mean to have a democratic road to socialism? And for me, Kautsky's a bit too naive, I think, about... He makes a very a, too, a, a facile conflation between democracy itself and the parliamentary institution, the parliamentary form of democracy. He seems to think that the two go absolutely together. And his critique of Lenin is that... One of the major critiques is that he thinks that Soviets, which he assumes that, that Lenin's actually trying to introduce Soviet power, the Soviets are too partial that they exclude, they, they can't create a kind of a sense of universal identity. They're not cross-class institutions, they're only working-class institutions, and as such, you can't win a social consensus by these class forms of democracy, whereas parliamentary democracy for Kautsky is a sort of, it's a not necessarily bourgeois form of democracy, it's kind of all-encompassing. And there's something to that, you know, that, that um, we, I'm always very, very suspicious, uh, uh, in fact, rather horrified by though that kind of, you know, ultra-left who dismisses parliamentary democracy or uh, liberal democracy as, you know, totally without merit. It's just, you know, it's just rubbish. It's, there's nothing to it. So Kautsky's not without his faults, but he is a very pioneering thinker. And I think what he does is, he's he, in, in a sense, he condenses the dilemmas of the radical left at the time in a way that, that tells us something about the real 
problems and the real lacunae in Marx and, and Len, uh, Marx and Engels' thought. And in a way, he might be seen as the kind of the father of democratic socialism in, in that sense. And so I think he's one of those figures who's ripe for rehabilitation to some extent, because very few people today would ever come across the name Kautsky, but those who do almost certainly come across the name Kautsky as the renegade Kautsky, right? They come across him via Lenin as this kind of bad guy who gets everything wrong, who's an idiot. Uh, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, that's how I was introduced to him as is, is a kind of a cautionary tale, yeah. a villain, a bad guy. And you just can't even talk about Kautsky in, you know, respectable socialist Marxist circles without just sort of uh, joining in the chorus of, of denigration. Um, I think it's also important to, to put him in his historical context. In some senses, he was the first prominent Marxist theoretician who was encountering what we might start to call something that was approaching a modern capitalist state. You know, he, he was he was ushering in the theories of classical Marxism into the 20th century, into the modern bureaucratic capitalist state form. And there are a lot of arguments we could say if we want to get real pedantic about it. A lot of people, some people out there might take me to task on calling the uh, pre-World War II German state uh, modern because it wasn't quite. But in any case, it was far more complex than anything that Marx yeah. saw in his lifetime uh, in terms yeah. of uh, being a, a modern parliamentary democracy. Yeah. So um, this is a really great, great introduction because in this essay, which turned out to be a chapter on state power socialism, folks can find the essay in um, – was it new, is it new Left Review, Amy? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's a New Left Review. It was published uh, as a separate it's essay. It's also in it was- the reader as well. Yeah, yeah, it's in the uh, Polancis reader for those who have that. But he opens up this this essay or this chapter in a really interesting way, which is why I love this uh, context that you just gave us, Ed, about Kautsky and the Second International. He says, The question of socialism and democracy, of the democratic road to socialism, is today posed with reference to two historical experiences, which in a way serve as examples of the twin limits or dangers to be avoided. The traditional social democratic experience, as illustrated in a number of West European countries, and the Eastern example of what is called, quote, real socialism. And so we talked about this, quote, Eastern variant of, quote, real socialism, which is this dual power kind of contra state smashing the state that, you know, that that, uh, allegedly occurred in the Soviet experience and that revolutionary socialists are still trying to sort of wrestle with today. And then on the other hand, he says there's this kind of traditional social democratic experience, which is, is, is not really a proud one. It has a lot of failures, and we know what social democ- democracy means today. It's, it's not anything that any socialist should be really proud of. Uh, so what Poulantz here is trying to do is kind of articulate a way out of this choice, this false choice, which he calls democratic socialism or the democratic road to socialist uh, Ed, t- what, what do you make of this project? What, what, what do you think? Uh, where, what are the lineages here, and, and what are the main kind of uh, through lines that he's trying to, uh, to to spell out here? The context in which I mean, Philosophers has undergone his own little odyssey, right? So he starts off as a sort of more or less, it seems, a more or less orthodox Leninist in his early work in terms of his vision of the process of change, socialist change. And comes to doubt it more and more until in his final book, he comes up with this really striking vision of the democratic road to socialism. And it's, it's rooted in his theory of the state. It flows from that. It's not, I don't think it's, it's there, are, there are some tensions there in what he says in this final chapter and what he argues in the main bit of the book about the state. 
but you know you can see the way in which it flows from from that so once he's made that move and demonstrated that the state is not a thing the state is not a fortress to be surrounded it's a field of struggle a terrain of struggle and the, and the class struggle traverses that the institutional materiality of the state as he calls it it opens up the possibility of this in what we've been talking about is this inside outside strategy where it becomes legitimate to think about the ways in which you might struggle to modify the strategic terrain of the state through mass struggles, but also through directly entering the state. It's obviously through the form of parliamentary elections, the formation of some sort of left government, which could work in some kind of dialectical way with the movement outside the state. And together, this comprises a sort of, he talked about two articulated processes. So there's the transformation of the state on the one hand, and the unfurling of, uh, he, he talked about the unfurling of direct rank and file democracy, sort of outside the state, but also augmenting the state. And so what you get this this vision of is, and it's, it's, it's inchoate, it's not necessarily that clear, but the, the broad outlines of it are fairly straightforward, which is that it's about combining struggle outside the state and the creation of new forms of mass democracy Perhaps, you know, factory committees, neighbourhood committees, participatory budgets, that sort of thing where ordinary people get involved in direct decision-making political power. And um, seeking to articulate that with a radically reforming government using the levers of state power as best it can to change things and to conduct a struggle within the state as much as anything else. And I guess the antecedent, I mean, there are certain parallels here with Kautsky because that's where Kautsky ends up after the First World War, where he increasingly argues for this kind of strategy in in opposition to the Spartakists and later to the the KPD, you know, the General Communist Party that that forms itself after the part of the Third International, then Third International. And what he he talks about is um, a socialist government coming to power within Parliament, but also a parallel process of forms of he talks about forms of direct democracy which will spring up alongside the existing states and will sort of you know kind of transform the networks and hierarchies of power in some again rather in Kuwait way but there's a clear similarity between what Kautsky and Polanski are saying I think Polanski is probably a bit more skeptical about Kautsky tends to have a rather a vision of the state in which he assumes that state power is neutral. It's an, in, you know, the state is an instrument that can be used by the SPD as much as it can be used by conservatives for their various purposes. You know, Polanski's, you know, the, his state theory just doesn't doesn't bear that sort of view out at all. So he's he's much more careful about this idea. He's careful to always say that the capitalist state is precisely a capitalist state, and yet the capitalism. It's not just about capitalists, is it? You know, capitalism is about the relationship between capitalists and the proletariat. So capitalism is, it comprises an antagonistic relationship within itself from the start. You you can't exist without that. And the same with the state. It comprises class antagonisms within itself. So it can't be the simple instrument or, or, or thing of the bourgeoisie. And so what, what Leninists and, um, I'm trying to. Uh, uh, Etienne Balibar wrote a book called *The Dictators at the Proletariat* about the same time as uh, slightly before Polanski's *State Pan Socialism*, where he's trying to re- where he's trying to defend the ideas in the context of the French Communist Party 
voting to to uh, expunge references to the dictatorship of the proletariat from its from its program. And Etienne Balabar writes a defence of the necessity of the di- of the historical stage of the dictates of the, prolet- of the proletariat. And what, one of the things he, that he argues is that the state state power is always the the political power of a particular class. So therefore, the state in capitalism is necessarily the state of the capitalists, and it's absolutely the state of the capitalists, and it's not at all the state of the of the proletariat. And similarly, the dictatorship of the proletariat is the state of the proletariat, absolutely, and it's not at all the state of the, bourge- of the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie. And um, Palantis's analysis of the state, I think, just, just shows up the incredible simplisticness of that argument from Balibar. The, you know, the, the idea that the state is somehow the uncomplicated possession of, he talks about it being the possession of the whole of the bourgeois class, you know, the whole of the bourgeoisie, owns and controls the capitalist state and you know just a moment's thought will make you realize that actually that uh, like mark says that the bourgeoisie is a band of warring brothers you know it, it doesn't get on with itself right, <laughs> you right, know of course. it doesn't have a singular set of interests capitalist competition affects uh, intra-class competition as much as anything else of course yeah 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 exactly and um one very interesting thing about about balibar actually is that being the kind of uh, the, the major defender of the notion of the classical Leninist thesis on the states is that recently he, uh, in the past few years, this was pointed out to me a few a few days ago on Twitter, that uh, Balibar actually in, in 2010 admitted that uh, Poulain was absolutely right uh, <laughs> that, uh, and he'd got it wrong. It's in, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the biggest yeah. defender of the dictatorship of the proletariat now says that this was a big mistake and that Poulain was right. Um, That's interesting. Uh, so so yeah, I saw and, a picture um, of Ballybar playing bocce ball at a conference uh, the other day. So he's he's playing bocce ball. He's mellowed out a little bit in his old age. Yeah, and, uh, now, that was shared by someone who's uh, Raphael, right? He was one of your guests. Raphael Cacciatorian uh, came across. That's the guy. That, uh, yeah, he, he gave me the uh, that reference there. I'm absolutely, I'm really grateful to him because it's yeah. uh, maybe much more confident uh, about this whole argument. Yeah, welcome to the Dead Pundit Society International. Uh, we are uh, <laughs> defenders of the true, uh, the true uh, ideology. Uh, yeah, the true, <laughs> the true Marxism. <laughs> Anyhow, the, the yeah. true received yeah. wisdom. The true received wisdom. Uh, yeah, the correct line of the dead pundit society. That's right. That's right. No deviations will be accepted. So, so in any case, you know, one of the the main, I think, uh, you know, we're we're being we're being uh, ridiculous and silly, but uh, hey, there's some truth here in in what what Palantis is trying to argue, and he he kind of articulates the central dilemma of the democratic road to socialism as such, and uh, this is on page two fifty six of State Power Socialism for those who are reading along. I will try to to to. This is a difficult sentence, so let's get let's get going. And I'll try to articulate it better. He writes, how is it possible radically to transform the state in such a manner that the extension and deepening of political freedoms and the institutions of representative democracy, which were also a conquest of the popular masses, are combined with the unfurling of forms of direct democracy and the mushrooming of self-management bodies? So that's a long sentence, a, a complicated question, but it's one that we really spelled out in the A side and this one that we're going to grapple with. Uh, here for the B side today, which it's like, on the one hand, how do you maintain the extension and deepening of political freedoms and institutions of representative democracy, which as you rightly mentioned on the A side, were victories 
of radicals and socialists throughout the throughout the, the history while also unfurling the potentials of mass democracy of direct democracy and of of self-management uh, that would be required under the democratization of the economy and in the political sphere because as we as we pointed to direct democracy does not have a stellar record when it comes to maintaining heterodoxy diversity of opinion dissent and 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 what we might call civil liberties and that that's that's the crucial question uh, it's a circle that can't be easily squared per se or or whatever but it is it is the central matter of 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 the road to democratic socialism mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a both and question. Especially I think when we speak of um a potential conjuncture where the existing constitutional and legal order is perhaps not operational. Um I think it's very necessary to contemplate what if any of the liberal order principles we want to either reappropriate or maintain or sort of articulate a more radical version thereof. Um, Mm. Because to just imagine that we can just institute something altogether new and simultaneously preserve not the rights but like the the liberties and the dignity of everybody during that process is to my mind incredibly naive and and, and dangerous, frankly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's that. That kind of um, the classic utopian myth of the sort of total of starting again from from scratch. That kind of you know kind of year zero narrative. Let's get rid of everything and start again. As if you can just kind of just plonk something down. It's going to work perfectly. Too accurate, uh, Cambodia. It's too mm. soon. Too soon for year zero jokes. Still, <laughs> after all these years, it actually is. Yeah, I right. believe the Chapo boys wanted to say <laughs> something about year zero in the. Their book title, and ultimately, the, the apparently they couldn't, and so that's why they did the piss taking, like your guide to revolution. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. Anyway, well, the children of those slaughtered in Cambodia are still living, I suppose. It's too soon. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, but you're absolutely right. You know, there's this idea, there's this ideology of these. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of dangerous. It's a through line that runs through this, and uh, this is what where you see the abolition of bourgeois democracy. And there's no shortage nowadays. The, ab- the abolition of, of the bourgeois of, state. The abolition right, no of the bourgeois court. Fuck rights. We of, make of our rights ab- in the streets. Abolish. Forget about rights. Forget about the abolish Supreme the court, court. Forget about. Abolish the cops. Abolish uh, prison. Well, you know. Abolish everything. Dead pundits from the, big, dead pundits from the beginning has, has been a, a response to people on the left who say, for example, in the United States, call the ACLU like you know fascist enablers they are suggest obviously people (laughs) stop it people who uphold civil liberties freedom of speech and all those kinds of things are enabling this fascist takeover um in society and i think like you know you ed over in in the uk with tommy robinson have uh, uh probably a fair amount to say about this right so how do we defeat these right wing just like objective fascists uh, while not undermining the kind of victories and the gains of of freedom of speech and other civil liberties that uh, that socialists have fought and died for, you know, in in over the past 100, 150 years, I mean, these are these are critical critical yeah. questions. Not so different than the one that Polantis was grappling with, you know, some years ago, in a sense. No, well, it's the sim. In some ways, it's a similar conjuncture, isn't it? 
um, yeah. that were it's the same sort of a sense of an end, uh, the end of a, an epoch. Uh, we're at the end of the tail end of neoliberalism and the kind of you know people talk about zombie neoliberalism, don't they? You know, th- th- it's just kind of clinging on because we don't have an alternative. Uh, in the same way that say, in the late seventies we sort of come to the end of the kind of you know broadly Keynesian cycle, if you like. And um, old grotesque forces were rearing their heads once more, including the the far right. So, I mean, that seems to be a a feature of periods of of crisis, particularly there's a bit of a lag, isn't there? So politics lags behind economics. So we're we're now going through the kind of political after effects, if you like, of the Great Recession. And, you know, classically what happens is you get a kind of polarisation to the right and and to the left. and those two forces kind of slug it out together while the centre, and I don't mean the Kautskian centre, but I mean you know, the centrist, the liberal centre, finds itself sort of caught in the middle and saying, oh, you're both as bad as each other, and um, in the end finding that it's rather more sympathetic to the, the far right perhaps than it is than the far left, do you know what I mean? Without, without going into that whole stupid ultra-left denunciation of all liberals as fascists, there is a history of um, liberals tending to, when push comes to to shove, they tend to go right rather than left. Well, they're also structurally incentivised as well. Like, the far right doesn't pose an existential threat to most of the Mm. systems and structures that that mediate most of our daily existence, right? You can Mm. be an incredibly reactionary far right society and still have a uh, capitalism hums along to a large extent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, there's a qualitative difference, isn't there? You know, in terms of the vision of change, that's it's not just a, just not just a matter of one side being nicer than the other, which is obviously the case. No, no, no. The left presents an existential threat to yeah. the, the yeah. status quo. So yeah, there's an inherent, um, like a natural sway irrespective of what you you know believe in your heart about fascism like you need not affectively sympathize with fascist reactionaries for the whole process Mm. to still be tipped in a certain direction so let's talk about how this this critique this this positive picture sort of uh, juts up against some of the more dual power strategies that exist in contemporary politics today because as we talked about on the A side, you know, this revolutionary socialism sort of sounds good on the face of it. I mean, hell, it even sounds good in the title. I mean, who wouldn't want to call themselves a revolutionary socialist? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed me. to be doing here? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, well, me either, because I used to call myself one and I don't anymore. So clearly. Did you actually? I just find that so fucking loppy. I'm sorry. I just can't even like. I mean, what, what I would suggest yeah. is I think most of us who used to be in that milieu, there's other one of, we we fit under one of two, one of two categories. The first are the people who really did buy into it 100% and they somehow came to their senses and said, well, God, I, I really went through a stupid phase there. You know, I think we've all done that in other phases of life, whether it was the music we listened to or the circles we ran in, or maybe somebody went through a goth phase or something like that. Uh, you know how it is. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I was straight edge for a couple of years and, and, uh, you know, and when what? I was in punk and hardcore bands. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So, sorry. Can I just confirm just straight at straight at just like no drugs, no alcohol and shit. Yeah. Like real angsty and like listen to like earth crisis and like, you know, played in a hardcore band. Yeah. Like that whole thing. Yeah. So (laughs) some people TMI, 
Taxi cab confession. Uh, some people uh, come around to the error of their ways through that sense. I, th- I would like to think mine was a little bit different. My departure with revolutionary socialism was that I sort of came up against the limits of the practice itself. And I didn't want to be bound to a set of discourses and dogmas that I felt like were not uh, effective in the current moment. And when I when I tried to grapple with them constructively and maybe revise them and push against them, uh, I, I learned very quickly from my elders and others in my organization <laughs> that uh, diversity of opinion was not to be tolerated. And of course, I reacted against that pretty harshly and didn't didn't stick around much longer thereafter. But uh, anyway, where where are we at now? There's still a number of revolutionary socialists inside of DSA. Even they uh, they oftentimes make their home in the Refoundation Caucus. So, Amy, you had mentioned that you pulled out some of uh, it's a it's an FAQ on dual power from Refoundation. Sorry. I did indeed. Do you want to um, inform the listeners as to what ReFoundation is before we go further? Yeah, so ReFoundation is a caucus uh, that that happened. Uh, some of them, hell, some of the patrons right here might be somewhat sympathetic to it. So we want to be as constructive as possible, contribute to your knowledge, and uh, you know, it's it's a caucus that that sort of promotes itself as the more radical, more truly Marxist kind of orientation inside of DSA that's trying to combat what they see as this kind of uh, revisionist, reformist kind of current uh, inside of DSA. Now, whether or not that revisionist, reformist current really exists, I'm not actually so sure about that because they would actually point that in my direction, and I sure as fuck am not a reformist. Um, So, yeah. Take that for what you will, <laughs> but uh, point being is there are some there are some key strategic differences there. The Refoundation, for example, ought to be back on its heels right now because they have been stridently against uh, the electoral strategies that have been wildly successful thus far in DSA. Um, of course, you know we don't know exactly what the results are going to be from those electoral uh, campaigns in terms of you know what kind of reforms and what kind of successes they'll have in the long term. But nonetheless, they've been incredibly instrumental in raising our profile and, and building our capacities, I think. And so right now, ReFoundation's, um, I mean, I think we can just say objectively, the scorecard isn't looking, isn't looking good. It's not, the, the score is not rising in their favor. But uh, they are comprised of revolutionary socialists, Trotskyists, uh, sort of Maoists, uh, com- different kinds of communists who have a certain kind of orientation to Leninism, state power, dual power. And that kind of thing. Um, they're a rather inchoate mass. They have a great website. People can check them out if they want to and read their mission statement and all that kind of stuff. So, Amy, go ahead and read off some of the freak, some of the uh, the highlights of their dual power approach. And I'd like to give Ed the opportunity to to respond. Uh, yes, I found it fascinating. So, this particularly contemporary reinstantiation of dual power has not been extensively theorized and certainly not in the academy, but there is a burgeoning level of material on it. And it seems to have been generated both out of this refoundation caucus, but also a number of affiliated organizations that are not explicitly part of DSA. So for instance, one of the lead 
authors on a series of these documents that have been, um, uh, um, what's the word, publicised among the refoundation types have been written by a woman named Sophia Burns who hails out of Seattle Communists, also known as the Communist Labour Party. So she's written extensively on on this version of dual power in the US and it's also tied to a notion of base building. Yeah, so I'll, I'll grab a couple of quotes to just articulate where they're at. So I'm just reading from a Q&A that Sophia Burns has authored. What does dual power mean? Dual power is both a type of institution and a strategy to change the world. Dual power means new independent institutions for people to meet their own needs in ways capitalism and the government can't or won't. Dual power institutions are created and controlled by the people they benefit. By developing them, people create a second kind of social, economic, and even political power separate from government and capitalism. That's what the dual means, in duality with the current system. The new community institutions then govern themselves using participatory democracy. Um, Dual power institutions come in two flavours, alternative institutions and counter-institutions. Capitalism is crooked, but it's the only game in town. Dual power is about giving people a second option. The two kinds of dual power institutions do this from different but complementary angles. Alternative institutions meet a need directly. Counter-institutions challenge capitalism's way of doing things. Alternative institutions start making a system that's just, while counter-institutions work against one that's unjust. Here we go. How does dual power work? Capitalism exists so that business owners can turn a profit. When people have a need that isn't profitable, the system usually ignores it. Dual power institutions fill those gaps. Instead of waiting for a state agency or charity to step in, they offer a way for people to identify problems and choose how to solve them. If we work through dual power, then we can cooperatively increase our shared power. Counter-institutions weaken injustice, while alternative institutions strengthen participatory democracy. By putting together a new system parallel to the current one, dual power can eventually provide enough of a second power base to totally replace capitalism. Dual power creates something outside of the existing power structure entirely. Its long-term goal is to replace that power structure while making our lives better and more self-determined in the meantime. Dual power in practice. Uh, How do I go about building one? One, determine a need. Two, consult with others. Three, research. Four, meet publicly. Five, figure out logistics. Six, analyze and improve. Seven, follow through. Every new institution goes through periods where no matter how much effort you put in, nothing seems to happen. That's normal. If you stay democratic, independent, goal-oriented, and flexible, then you will pull through. Okay, so I think we've got a lot to work with there. Ed, Mm. does this surprise you? Mm. Does this shock you? Did you recognize, did you realize that there were people articulating dual power in this way, much less inside of DSA or 
on the sort of like organized left today? And like, when, what, what, what do you make of this kind of? No, I didn't. I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, it sounds relatively benign, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. um, I wouldn't say that that's a definition of dual power that Lenin would recognize, to be honest. You know, what, no. what, what we're actually no, seeing there is, um, it's, a, it's more of a kind of autonomist. It's, a, it's an anarchist sort of interstitial strategy, isn't it? You know, you build up, you build up the sort of um, little islands of post-capitalism within capitalism, and then it eventually overwhelms and um, sort of, you know, outperforms out the capitalist institutions. You know, as far as it goes, you know, it's not, not particularly objectionable. Um, I just think it's totally nuts and it's not going to work you know the the, the the objection you can see which this this is the recipe for a whole lot of people to kind of burn themselves out and become disillusioned very quickly when they realize that their you know their alternative institutions they're building whatever they are i don't know what dog walking services or something that they're not actually going to um pose much of a threat to um, oh oh Ed, to sorry I'll, I'll just i'll just pop in there um she's actually Towards the end, we, we we have some answers to some common um, pitfalls. So, amongst others, burnout is listed. Uh, really? Okay. What did they say about that? Burnout. A few people doing most of the work. Project leaves little time to pursue other interests. Exhaustion. And then we have a solution. Delegate work. Share responsibilities with everyone. Check in with members about what they'd prefer to be doing. And if need be, scale back your activity to a sustainable level. So, so there's that. Have either of you um, read Nick Sunacek and Alex Williams' Inventing the Future? No, no, I've heard of it. I've read parts. I've read parts of it. Actually, shout out to my friend Austin Schmidt, who I believe is doing the documentary version Uh of it. Yeah, Yeah. there was something in the pipeline. Did you read a bit about folk politics? There's a critique a of... A little, um, a touch of it, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly the sort of thing that they're critiquing here, um, this sort of... Mm, um, isn't it just, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I, um, I'm i not 100% on board with uh, that kind of full automation project, but I much prefer that sort of vision of a sort of post-work society to one in which everyone's running around doing everything, you know, by consensus and sitting in committees all day. You know what I mean? Just There's a really like, great book where? or article. It's like, you know, the problem with socialism is that there's too many fucking meetings. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a lot of truth to that. You know, if, if, if everything's run yeah. by a co-op and everything else, you really want to go to it. You got a meeting uh, for your trash collection in your neighborhood. You got a meeting for your child's uh, whatever daycare schooling. You got a meeting for your lawn care Society, you just like meetings every fucking day all the time. And there's something to say about yeah. having a representative state and a representative democracy handle yeah. the kind of uh, banalities of your life so that you can actually go pursue the things that fucking matter. And, exactly. and, and delegating and dictating chores and responsibilities in society. Someone who knows what they're doing as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think before we run too far with it, I think that's kind of like a very charitable interpretation in terms of like that might be nice once we're at a point where work is historic and antiquated. But like this is not posed as a way of thinking about the world once working for a wage is no longer necessary. This is posed explicitly as a method by which we achieve 
a democratic socialism. Mm. Ah, right, right, yeah. There's a certain kind of person who that would appeal to and who might stick with it. But I think they're probably unusual. You know, most people don't want to be doing that kind of stuff. Most people, and I agree with what Adam just said, and um, Zizek said something about this, and Zizek said a lot of fucking stupid stuff, but one of the, one of the good things he said is that he was, he was talking about the idea of the abolition of the state, and he said um, when it comes to things like filling in potholes in the streets and, you know, road traffic management, I don't want to spend my day, you know, uh, sitting in the committee deciding wh- when we're going to fill the potholes in, you know, and booking the, booking the concrete mix or whatever. I want someone in the bureaucracy to, to do that. Mm. You know, I want there to be st- some kind of centralised state agency that does these sorts of things uh, so that I can get on with, like Adam said, doing the things I want to do, like wh- whatever it is, you know, watching TV, go and play sports or something. You don't want to be in a condition of kind of hyperactivism. And there's kind of, there's some sort of vision of um, the, the sort of typical utopianism of uh, the, the kind of ultra-left is this kind of vision of an absolutely of a society in, in which there's kind of no, there's absolutely no mediating representative institutions you know everything's done somehow spontaneously by the people as the people in these kind of uh, radically grassroots organs of decision making and it seems to me in many ways quite a reactionary utopia um it's completely because, reactionary yeah yeah and it's just it's, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where if you were to present that sort of vision and if you were to read out what you just read out to, let's say, the ordinary person in the street in inverted commas and say, hey, is that something that you'd like to see or do? Most people would probably say much what we said, maybe, which is, well, it sounds nice, but I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want that. This may sound like a totally fucking daft analogy, but uh, but if you guys can bear with me, like, just for a minute. So, given that I am, like, 30 and still a fucking student forever, um, one of the things that I did a number of years ago was I registered with a bunch of uh, market research agencies as, like, a stooge that goes to focus groups <laughs> and gets paid to, like, eat weird new foods or watch new ads and give feedback and just, like, talk shit to help capitalists sell shit to people. Anyway, it's pretty good money, like, really quite good money. You usually get, like, 150 bucks, like, an hour, an hour and a half at most. It's totally fine. But the idea is, like, you sit around a table with a bunch of your peers and you're getting paid considerably good money and all you have to do is, like, chat about some stuff. I find it totally cool and not too much of a responsibility. But, like, even, like, a lot of my mates who are obviously no longer studying and they're all, like, working, they just think that sounds like the worst thing imaginable. They're like, even for even for the money, I wouldn't want to do that. I would never want to sit around a table and, like, talk about shit for an hour with random people, right? And that's when you're getting paid to do it. So the idea that, yeah. like, every minor detail of your life and of, like, collecting, like collective life it's not just your life too that's the thing we forget like it's it'd be all well and good to administrate your own house and do that sort of shit but like every single question associated with like the coherent running of like really banal shit would need to be part of these constant meetings i don't know i just the other thing that seems really like i'm really glad you said reactionary ed because 
it seems to me at least one of Sophia Burns' uh, strengths to a degree is that she's identified a lot of problems within like, uh, recurrent problems within tactics or strategy within left organizing. But again, it's like a double-edged sword in that her alternatives are so heavily influenced by what she perceives to be the flaws within the tactics of the present that she runs reactive in the opposite direction. And so she kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater to a degree. Mm. Like she's sort of so insistent on preventing particular problems that you end up just with this completely diluted and unrealistic um, scenarios to, in order, or, or uh, prescriptions in order to ameliorate those. And it, yeah, it's really peculiar. I guess the way that I'd look at this is when when you think about you know, what do we what do we mean by socialism? What is it we want? In a way, it's quite it's quite simple. It's the thought that. A lot of problems and suffering is caused by the capital accumulation process, you know, the production of profit, right, for private profit. And the kind of observation that actually we've got the technology and the know-how and the resources actually to provide a decent standard living for everyone. And if you got rid of the root cause of the worst forms of inequality, that uh, it would free people up um to do nice stuff and they wouldn't have to spend all their time working in shit jobs yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. you know and they would they wouldn't live st- stunted lives and they they wouldn't you know spend like half their life in prison or whatever and it's actually quite a it's quite a modest vision it's not a utopian vision it's actually it's just a kind of it's it's about saying that we could solve some of the worst problems that we have through a more egalitarian democratic society but that that's not to say that we're trying to en- envision some sort of you know a vision of ultimate harmony or complete reconciliation where you know all conflicts are over and, and all forms of um, subordination or, or command are, are, are done away with and in fact there's a few interesting passages in Marx and Engels I think it is where he says that you, you because of the conditions that humans live in but the kind of species that we are, we can never do away with authority and command. This and one of his, um, he's dissing an anarchist, and I think he's right about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the question, and the, the question is, well, how how do we ensure that if we go a bit further than that and say, I think like we were saying before, that some form of state is inevitable, and it's it's only through defining the state as as be as being synonymous with class oppression that you can actually talk about the abolition of the state. But it's a sleight of hand. It's not you're not really. It's a bit of an you know, obscurantism. If we're talking about the state as being a set of institutions that de- de- are mechanisms to de- for, for dealing with uh, you know social coordination problems. If we can't do away with that, and it seems to me that you, how would you possibly do away with that apart from through going back to a kind of pre Neolithic type society? I was going to say, it seems to me they've done away with it in any form of institutionalized or centralized form. And yeah. hypothetically, they're doing away with like the wage-labor relationship and, and time constraint. But then you're almost replacing the like wage work with all this fucking localized municipal 
organizing. Yeah, you might well be a lot more busy. Sure, it's not in a centralized format. It's just that you're constantly in these local councils organizing all your shit because there's no one doing that. Like it would probably form, it would become an almost full-time thing. Anyway, if you're having yeah, to contemplate that's, that's every it. tiny little thing on atomized, localized um, mm. basis, it's... I, I guess one, one way of looking at it is to say that if we can use the term communism with a small c for a, for a, for a while without putting scare quotes about it, the difference between communism and, and primitive communism, okay. right, is that in pre-Neolithic primitive communist societies, we're talking about small groups of kinship kind of based hunter gatherer societies who don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to worry about other than getting food and and finding somewhere to shelter from the rain these sorts of vision these kind of anarchist visions of a kind of direct of extreme direct democracy almost seem to me like kind of reactionary in the sense that they're, they're trying to go back to kind of that, that primitive communism that kind of that, that kind of era of simplicity where, where it was possible for us for a little group of people with homogenous kind of cultural values and views and whatever to decide things as and when without any form of institutionalized decision making without any forms of kind of political structures to speak of um, but once the population uh, and the kind of technology at our disposal is is above a certain level you simply can't go back to that sort of unmediated form of um, decision making. It's it's just not possible, right? So I mean, just to wrap this up, I think we've got to move on and in, in, in this bear of an A B side here. So just to wrap up, you know, one thing that Polanski concludes in his essay, he says, "But one thing is certain: socialism will be democratic, or it will not be at all." And so, you know, he basically spends the entire essay, the entire chapter, outlining some of the the pitfalls of democratic socialism and he says and yet right and yet it will be democratic or it will be nothing at all and i think that you know we would have to extend in order to address what we've been talking about just now we'd have to extend that and say you know something to the effect of democratic socialism will involve some kind of state apparatuses and representative institutions or it will not happen at all uh because i i can tell you the vast the masses of normies out there are not going to sit in meetings all day and, 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 and be professional organizers. They just want to get on with their fucking lives. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's, we're not going to do it any other way. And it's just kind of infantile, uh, to, to, to go on believing that, uh, everyone is going to be a card carrying communist organizer spending uh, 80 hours a week organizing for communism. And yet we have to move on. And, and find a way to change this society that's so fucking barbaric. And I think the democratic road to socialism is just that. The inside-outside strategy is just that. And really, that's all we've got. Yeah, any parting words, Amy? We've got we've to end this thing. I think, I'm, I'm exhausted. I know Ed is. And uh, man, we've been recording forever. We've given, we've given the, the people a lot this week. Yeah, I, d- I think that just ultimately, like uh, the nature of this particular notion of dual power that doesn't engage with the state, it doesn't engage with the existing institutions, and it certainly doesn't engage in any meaningful way with, for instance, the hegemonic right-wing control of every level of government at present, is not just, in my mind, not likely to be successful at bringing about any kind of socialist transformation. It's also ceding the very real contestations of power 
that have material impacts on very real people today in the here and now. It's totally ceding that territory to the right by not contesting it. Right. That's absolutely correct. Well, Ed Rooksby, thanks so much for joining us for the B-side. Thanks again for giving us all your time. This has been one bear of a, of a A B-side interview here. We've been at this for several hours now, and I hope that the patrons and the masses alike will have uh, benefited and learned quite a bit from it. Uh, everybody keep an eye out for Ed's upcoming book in the coming years here. It's called Taking Power, Reform, Revolution, and Social Strategy. Uh, I haven't read it yet. But I, uh, I suspect <laughs> it's going to be a book. It's going to be a I need some wiggle room there, you know. In, in case you like, uh, you know, somehow in the next couple of years you decide that you endorse fascism, I don't want to go on record like, you know, without any, uh, you know, wiggle room or gray area. But without having read it yet, I suspect it's exactly the kind of book uh, that we desperately need right now to understand the moment that we're living through. Uh, so, yeah, Ed, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Well, thanks. I've uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Oh, this new crazy mother...